Meet Bob Olson. Bob's the author of Answers About the Afterlife and the host of Afterlife TV. A private investigator who began investigating life after death in 1999, Bob now records his interviews with experts, authors, and people who've had extraordinary experiences so he can share it all with you. Enjoy the show. Hi everybody, Bob Olson here with Afterlife TV. You can find us at afterlifetv.com. This is where we search for evidence of life after death and ask the meaningful questions around that subject. Boy, today's subject, it's very meaningful. Um, something that we have never covered before. Something that I, uh, uh, I'm gonna comment in a moment about how important I think it is. But uh, our expert guest today is Dr. Lonnie Leary. Did I say that correctly? Lonnie, yes. We are Larry. so happy to have you here. Um, thank you very much for getting up early yes. and, and doing this interview. Yes, you're welcome. Happy to do it. Lonnie is the the author of this book here, No One Dies Alone. No One Has to Die no Alone. No One Has to Die Alone. Wouldn't it be Pretty nice if, no, if nobody died alone? Yeah. Um, preparing for a Meaningful Death. Um, Boy, that, that, I was just saying to, to Lonnie, I'll just speak to the audience. I was just saying to Lonnie uh, before we started that this is one of those books uh, that to me is so important because um, in our society, in the United States especially, uh, it's one of those subjects, death is one of those subjects that people tend to not really want to think about, never mind talk about, never mind read about. Um, I want to give her credit for writing this and the publisher a lot of credit for publishing it because I, I don't think this is ever going to be one of those subjects w that someone writes about and becomes this big New York Times bestseller uh, for that very reason. And yet, at the same time, and the reason that I'm doing this show today is that I think it is probably one of the most important subjects that we need to talk about, that we need to talk about with one another, that we need to talk about with our children, that we, we just, this subject needs to be discussed. Do you agree? Yeah, we need to bring it out of the closet and put it on the dining room table and talk about it like we talk about birth and sex and finances and all the other uh, subjects that used to be taboo. Why is it that it became this way? You know, I, I remember when my grandfather passed. He lived in our house, and I wasn't even—I didn't even really realize he had died. I wasn't sure what happened. I, his room was empty. Uh, oh. What's going on? Why did our society become like this, where some other societies are much more comfortable with talking about death? Well, yes, uh, other other cultures, societies keep um, the elders in their home and so they see the the process of aging and declining and it's part of the normal rhythm of life and so it people are less afraid of it because it's so it's woven into the fabric of their life yeah and um, when in a hundred years ago we used to have a parlor where we would bring our deceased loved one down into the parlor and the women would cleanse the body and dress the body while the men were outside in the workshop building the coffin. Mm. Everyone was participating. Oh. Everyone was a community and, um, and in being that kind of community and working together, they were already in the process of healing their grief. They were soothing each other, comforting each other by being there. And then they all walked the um, casket 
and buried. They dug the the hole and they buried their loved one altogether. So it was just part of life, and they didn't push away from it. Now we have our um, aging and our ill loved ones dying in the hospital where yep. they don't want to be. Right, but they're removed from us, and when we don't have the exposure, we become it becomes a mystery, and so death we we start fearing death and we move away from it we do not become involved in it and it becomes bigger than us yeah we now have industries built around you know uh taking it away from the unpleasantness of life um so everything is anesthetized kind of so bury our dead we don't dress our dead we don't officiate um at the ceremony and we don't we don't dig the grave we don't put our loved ones to rest well, that's so true. And and when my grandfather passed, I was ten. Um, do you think do you think things have improved or got worse since then? That was seventy three, I think. They've gotten worse. Yeah. No. Yeah, they've gotten worse, except for um, the um, hospice movement and the palliative care movement. Hopefully, that's going to bring it back into the public arena, and there will be more education, and it'll it'll be more commonplace. But you know, we don't even have language for death and dying, we have euphemisms. And um, we we do our, our young, especially our youth, such a disservice because we we teach them to be afraid of, of death and dying. Uh, children are not afraid of it unless they're taught. To oh, that's interesting. Because I, I was kind of thinking it was more like, you know, we're afraid of what we don't know, you know, which... We you know, we see this with all sorts of things in society, but, you know, we don't yeah. understand, you know, if you didn't grow up with a certain race or something, yes. you know, you might be fr afraid of them because it's unusual to you, you know? Right. You know, I see and that I with homosexuality. You grow up, right. you don't know anybody who's gay. Right. You might have some weird, odd thoughts and fears about it. Then all of a sudden, you end up with a friend who is, and all that stuff gets right. goes away. Is that also a factor in this? Just the, the it's absolutely a factor, and so a lot. I I'm, my book is very practical, and what I hope to teach is how people can lean into the opportunity uh, at the end of their loved one's life. Because the closer we get to it, the more experience that we have with it, the more um, our uh, the less death anxiety we have, and the yeah. greater our competency and our confidence is. So we see opportunities to be of service when a loved one is is aging or ill or failing in any way, and we move closer, and we are able to make a difference at the end of life instead of feeling hopeless and helpless. Well, I, I love that. I love the uh, that phrase that you use, um, lean into. We're going to talk more about that. I think that uh, one of the greatest ways that you start uh, the conversation in this book is you tell your own story. It's so meaningful to me. I was telling my wife about it soon after I read it, and uh, she she just got all excited about it. It, it, it's, it. it explains the reason that you do this work, and it makes... Um, I don't know, it just makes so much sense as to why, it, it explains why this is so important. Uh, why don't you tell us the story uh, that sort of became the catalyst for the work that you do that began at the age of 13? Mm -hmm. um, when I was 13, my mother was ill uh, with Guillain-Barre. And in the 60s, in Hawaii, where I was born and raised, everyone, there were seven known cases of Guillain-Barre, and everyone was dying. 
But in my family, with the right intentions, I believe, my mother and father did not talk about her illness. They didn't educate us. And so we didn't know what was coming. And therefore, we couldn't prepare. Mm. So on a morning when I was 13 and my brother told me um, that my mother was especially ill, I did the only thing that I knew how to do when I was 13. And that was to take my two younger brothers away from home to play at the beach, thinking that my mother would be able to sleep and rest. I didn't know she was dying. Yeah. And so we left the home. And later that afternoon when I came home, I walked into her room, her bed was empty, and she was gone. And I, uh, a, there was a note from a friend who's saying that she had taken my mother to the hospital. And my mother died in the hospital without me ever being able to see her or say goodbye. And um, my family never talked about how she died why she died, what the cause was. But just a week before that incident, um, my mother was very loving and open. And was um, I clearly remember her standing at the kitchen sink. And I walked by. I was a typical 13-year-old. And she turned around and looked at me and said, Lonnie, I love you so much. I don't know whether she had a premonition of her death or not. Sure. She said, Lonnie, I love you so much. And in my typical, in atypical 13-year-old's way, trying to gain independence and break away, I just uh, tisked and rolled my eyes and walked on. My mother died without me telling her, in my mind, without me telling her that I loved her. And so within the absence of information about why she died, I created my own reasoning. And um, uh, it was a fantasy reality, but in my mind, and for decades afterward, I believed that my mother had died because she believed that her only daughter didn't love her enough. Uh -huh. And so she hadn't thought to live. And I believed in my mind that my mother died alone. So the, fant the fantasy was truly much worse than the reality. But I lived with that image and that, that the meaning of her death in a very uh, convoluted and shame-based way for years and years. But I remember after her death saying to myself, vowing, this will not be a tragedy in my life. I am going to find some good and some meaning in this. And never again could I, um, I, I, I couldn't cope with the thought that another loved one would die alone or without me. And so I was going to learn everything I could in my life so that that never happened again. Now, um, and, and of course, that sets you off uh, mm -hmm. with the work that you do. We'll talk about that in a moment. But um, at that young age, uh, how do you educate yourself about any of this? Uh, bookstores, libraries? Well, well, what I did to take care of myself at that time, because um, my father was doing such a good job as a single parent, but he wasn't talking about grief. And back in the 60s, nobody knew to do that. Yep. There weren't um, support groups for children who had lost parents and things like that. And I had no friends that had lost a parent. Oh, wow. And um, so I returned to school, but of course, no one said anything directly to me. They just whispered behind my back, and I felt... I felt very different and, and shamed about that too. Mm. Um, and so the, the way that I coped was just to write and write and write and write. I didn't have someone to talk to. I didn't have someone to ask questions of. And so I just started journaling and writing. So I've been writing for a very long time in my life um, to uh, 
to take care of myself. And um, then when I did go to college, um, it was the focus of my um, work. And um, uh, went into counseling. And then when I was 29 years old, my life changed. And I had an accident and died. And that clarified even more strongly for me um, what I was to do and that death was not the enemy and death was not a tragedy and um, really propelled me on into the second half of, of uh, my work. All right, so this is very interesting. So um, so obviously, uh, I'm going to back up a little bit in a moment, but it's, it's always interesting to, for, for me to hear our guests' stories because so often do you, with this bird's eye view, you can see how the universe has sort of put things in their way yes. um, so that they end up with the calling that they have. And, yeah. and certainly your mother's passing is the beginning of that. Um, uh, and, th and then, you know, then you go to school and, and you study, uh, what was it, thanatology? Maybe you... Yeah, uh, that was my... my uh my doctoral work, my PhD was in psychology and, and I specialized in thanatology which was the study of death and dying okay. and then went on to teach a university course, develop a, a program um, to train others in that. Um, what, by the time you were 29 and you had the near-death experience, were, now you're out of school by that time or not? Uh, well, I had my master's degree at you that did. time. Okay. But um, when I was 29 years old, I was um, um, doing some side work, but um, raising my only child. So when this happened, I was a mother of a two-year-old. Oh, you were okay, and and then you have this. But again, like I say, you know, when you look at this bird's eye view of your passion uh, forming over time, for you to have the experiences that you had. Uh, as a child, and, and then go to school for the things that you went to school for, and then to have this near-death experience uh, amazes me to see that uh, you're getting all the education that you need and the experiences that you need to really be able to help people with the work that you do. Yeah, and it it was real. It was you know it was after some formal um, education that I went into um, work apply this in hospices. And it was really in those hospice, and it was really the direct um, contact with the patients that taught me the most. They taught me how to be with them, what they needed, and what made a difference. So they were my real educators. And 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 you say in the book, I mean, you you have sat with people while they were passing over what five hundred people. Right, I've been with thousands of people in the dying process okay, and grieving wow. process, but at the bedside of over 500 at the moment that they passed. Oh my goodness, that's amazing! Um, that's it was amazing. such a it was such a sacred opportunity. I mean, I I I, I take this so um, it, it it's it, it's it it overwhelms me to be invited into the most intimate time of a person's life. It, yeah. it was such an honor you know and, and I think people are going to recognize as we go forward uh, though also why it's such a gift for them to have you there um, that was definitely clear uh, from from what I understand about you and, and and the way you treat people during that that time um, I want to back up a little bit because I'm a little more interested in your grief experience you know you as a child you know it was interesting because it's probably not that 
that unlike uh, the grief experience of some adults, knowing that you really just didn't know what to do, you were uneducated in this in this area. Again, so many adults are as well because they've never had these conversations. Uh, I I find it interesting you had mentioned in your story that you know you went back to school fairly early, just kind of hoping maybe it would be a distraction to you, right? I did, right? And, it was the only. It was the only. Uh, so I was in eighth grade at the time that my mother died. And it was the only place that had some routine and some, you know, boundaries um, that, I, that I just knew what to do. I could go, kind of go through the motions. Um, of course, at home, people were flailing and but not talking about it. So it was kind of it was a little more crazy making at home. Yeah, and yet yeah. that had its issues in itself because of the way people treated you or looked at you or all sorts of things, right? I I, I like the idea though. You had talked about this. Uh, you wrote about what one girl said to you in yeah, school. Yeah. Um, uh, tell us what she said and, and why that was so significant to you. Well, you know, after all these years, so we're talking um, 45 years ago this happened to me, yeah. and I can still so clearly remember the kindness, the kindnesses of a few people who did risk and step out to say something to me even though I'm sure they were thinking, oh my gosh, I don't want to say the wrong thing or I don't know what to say. But clearly I remember one friend who walked over three miles each way to get to my mother's uh, memorial service. Wow. The kindness of a 13-year-old to do that, you know? Yeah. And then the other thing was um, a, another um, girl, in uh, another 13-year-old, was the only one to write me a note and just said in her note, um, I'm sorry to hear about your mother. You must be so sad. Mm, yeah. But just acknowledgement, that validation that I was seen and that this was a real event in my life and that it was important was so touching. And I will never forget her or her kindness. And that's a big part of it, isn't it? Uh, I mean, part of your message, which is uh, that, that people just don't want to ignore the elephant yes. in the room. They they need to talk about it with yeah. with somebody, right? I mean, does you don't have to have any. You you can't fix it, obviously. You don't have yeah. to necessarily have anything yeah. uh, to say that's necessarily going to help. Just listening, really. Right. Right. And what I what I tell people is that you. So my goal is that no one has to die alone but also that no one has to grieve alone because it's the greatest pain in dying and in grieving is feeling emotionally abandoned that's the that's our greatest suffering and so if we can connect what i tell people is that you don't have to know how to do it perfectly there is no perfect yeah. but just participate please participate again lean into another person's dying or lean closer to another person's grieving and just be a an authentic presence for them that shows your own um, unique way of um, sharing compassion. Alright, so now in 2003, how many years later, this is 40 years later or something, I don't even know, um, everything, so, the story sort of comes full circle, you know, yeah. tell us about that. It is a full circle story because I had spent my life vowing that another loved one would not die alone. And I had prepared myself both academically and also experientially. And I really felt as though I, I knew how to make a difference at the end of someone's life. And sure enough, um, in 2003, I was 50 years old and I was teaching 
uh, Death and Dying at George Mason University in um, uh, Fairfax, Virginia. And I was in private practice helping others grieve and um, cope at the end of their life. And I got a phone call from my father, who at the time was um, 83, I think, and saying, Lonnie, you know that um, pneumonia that we thought I had? Well, it turns out that it's end-stage lung cancer. And I said, okay, we can do this. Uh, and I closed my practice. I canceled my university classes. I said to my husband, um, I'm going home to Hawaii and I'll probably be gone for six months. I hoped it would be six months. Yeah. And, um, and uh, so I flew home and I moved in with him and I was his primary caregiver. And um, it, it was a great relief to him. He wasn't going to have to do this alone. That there would there would somebody. He knew that there would be someone there to advocate for him, to emotionally support him, and to physically care for him. And uh, I, you know, end stage cancer. Uh, when you have uh, stage four cancer, usually uh, hospice will say you have up to six months to live. So of course I was hoping for six months. Uh, when I got there, um, I was very direct about everything. I had a family meeting and talked about his dying and asked him directly what he wanted, very direct questions, so that everyone could hear the same message at the same time in his language. And um, uh, I asked him questions such as, um, where do you want to be when you die? Who do you want to be with you? Who do you not want to be with you? What do you want to be hearing? What do you want to be seeing? Very, very direct experiences that we could set up. What I was trying to do was give him as much control at the end of his life as possible. Yeah. Because when a person is dying, what happens is they lose control. Mm. So I wanted him to be the author of his death as he had been the author of his life. And I was there as his advocate to make sure that his wishes were followed. So we laid that all out. And just 13 days after I arrived, oh. I uh, was sitting at his bedside holding his hand and he reached up and took the oxygen tube out of his nose and I said dad you need the oxygen or you'll die soon and he said no more and I said are you saying you don't want the oxygen anymore so I'm clarifying what his decision is he says no more and I said do you want me to turn the oxygen off and he said yes so I said I'll be right back I ran down the hall turned off the noisy oxygen machine came back got on his bed held him in my arms and just gently caressed him and sang to him and his eyes were closed and they were closed for about 30 or 40 minutes and I was just there breathing with him very gently telling him the very few things that are important at the end of his life I love you your life mattered I will never forget you thank you and after about 40 minutes, his eyes opened wide, and he looked at the corner of the room, and he said his, his nickname for my mother, Duchess. I said, of course she's here, Dad. You can go to her. Just let go and go to her. And that was, he took his last breath. I was singing a favorite Hawaiian song to him. He took his last breath, and he died in my arms. And it was gentle. It was his death. It was a perfect death. Mm. And that experience changed my grief. So sad. Um, I have his 
Chris, but um, I didn't grieve in the same way that I grieved with my mother because I knew I had made a difference. I knew I had done everything I could. I knew he knew and there was no shame and there was no regret and uh, it was my last gift to him. It was his last gift to me. Yeah. Because no. there was such a healing in it. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Um, I... Uh, it's tough to move on from that. Uh, you know, let me just say, I, I think uh, we can learn a lot from that story. And I think that one of those things is, uh, it, I know when I was reading about it, uh, and even while you were saying it, was uh, what goes through your mind is, oh, I, I want to know what to do. I want to know what to do the way she knew the proper things to say, the proper things to do. What's uh, in the book? And it's all in this book, you know, and, and again, another reason, you know, I, it's just for if people to, were to buy 12 copies and give them to their closest friends and family members, you know, the gift that they'd be giving them for just this reason alone that you described, for instance, how many people would try to get him to put the oxygen back on? I mean, isn't that just sort of a common reaction? It is a common reaction, and and when we when we when we are prepared ahead of time, you see, there wasn't a fear. First of all, I knew he was going to die, mm -hmm. so there wasn't a denial about that, and I wasn't afraid about the process because I knew what to look for. I knew he was dying, um, but uh, I wasn't to put the oxygen back on. Is often for the person who's grieving. We're afraid. Of his uh, death right. rather than him being afraid but again I go back to what were his wishes and that became the mantra in my family so that there was never any um, disagreement about his care because the question always was what would dad want yeah what did dad you know lay out for us and um, it was very clear who he was and what he wanted and I, I say that you know a person gets this death they get this life they get this death and they get their vote it wasn't my vote it should have been his vote and he got it you gave another you gave another example um, in another interview that I listened to uh, about an elderly woman who wanted to go back to some community meeting or something and she wanted to smoke on the way there. Could you tell us that story because I think it's significant in relation to what we're talking about. Yeah, I love good old um, I'll call her Eva. Um, yeah, she was she was a very feisty woman and a, uh, an important member of her community. She was a real um, advocate out there and she was dying of lung cancer and she smoked like a chimney and um, uh, hospice had been called in and I was her um, the, the primary person there and um, at the end of her life she wanted to go to this one community uh, meeting there was a vote that was important to her and and she couldn't walk there and so we put her on a um, uh, how a wheelchair put her in a wheelchair with uh, and she was smoking uh, like a chimney into the meeting and later, um, the hospice uh, was very angry at me because they said that I should have taken the cigarette away from her because she was setting a bad example. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is her 
her life and this is her death and if this comforts her at the end of her life who are we to take that comfort away in fact that's what that's what we are here for and everyone has a different self-soothing method um, another cigarette was um, not going to cause her death and if it did it was still her choice so yeah. again I would be there to support a, a person's choice whether I agree with it or not and that's very very important that if I'm there in service to another person of course I bring information that might um, uh, affect and help a person's discomfort or pain but I am not there um, to change their mind I'm there to support their choices yeah uh, the, the last choices that they get to make right understand I have to accept I oh. ha and it's a big difference if I can teach that to families that mom's wishes we're there to accept them not to agree with her or understand them but to accept them that's beautiful that's that's such a difference between those two things ah yeah. uh, wow all right um, and you mentioned you talked about your father's uh, what I would refer to, and maybe some of our, our audience here would refer to as a deathbed vision. You know, um, when he saw your mo mother. Um, I, I know you have, so you, having sat with over five hundred people during during their death process. Um, I'm sure you've seen many of these, have you not? It's very very common, and one of the things that I try to teach through hospices and um, in family situations is that um, we need we can offer comfort when we validate a person's experience so these deathbed visions as you call them um, pre-death visions are of such comfort um, to people who are dying because pretty um, consistently they are always a visit from a loved one who's previously deceased and those loved ones come to them, come to the person who's dying, to say, don't be afraid, you won't be alone, I'm here, and um, you'll be okay. Why would anyone take that sense of comfort from a loved one? So my response to those situations is usually, of course they're here. Where mm -hmm. else would they be? Well, certainly. Uh, first, I want to say... I like pre-death visions a lot better than I like deathbed visions. I don't know why. It just sounds a lot nicer. Um, but, uh, but from, of course, having had the near-death experience that you had, I mean, in your mind, it's also in a course. I mean, but it would have been even if you hadn't had that, correct? I mean, to not argue with them about what it is that they're experiencing is sort of the key here. Right. I want to honor a person. You know, and and uh, so honoring means accepting their experience and the meaning that they attribute to it. I want to hear someone. I want to listen. I want to listen. Well, let's let's take this then to the next section, uh, which is you know I don't know you could what dying people want and need. I want to talk a little bit about this. You have a chapter titled uh, "How We Die Matters." Tell it just tell matter. us tell us a little bit about 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 that chapter, How We Die Matters. Well, How We Die Matters because what the dying, all these thousands of people that I've been with have taught me, what they've taught me, this is their legacy that I want to pass on, you know? This is their voice. Um, what, they, what they have taught me is that uh, at the end of life, it is not their pain that they're most afraid of. 
especially if they're connected to hospice or palliative care. We can take care of people's physical pain. Um, the emotional pain is often more difficult because it, it, it addresses um, the need for forgiveness and to forgive others, uh, to finish our business, and to find meaning in our life. But it's not pain that the dying are most afraid of. It's not even their imminent death that they're most afraid of because at the end of life when the body can't be repaired or put back together and the quality of life is no longer there, death is a, a way out. Death can be a relief. And, and I want people to honor that too, that experience, that it's okay if it's a relief, you know. Um, but what the dying have told me is that their greatest pain, as I've said, is the feeling, the experience of being emotionally abandoned. When people do move away, when they don't talk about what's really going on for the dying person, when they dismiss, when they minimize the dying person's visions or what they want to talk about, and they lose such an opportunity. This is their last opportunity to, to connect to their loved one and to love and to be of service but when we don't talk about what's real there's no connection it's such an empty empty feeling so we can change we can make a difference I'm talking about those of us who are caregivers um, those of us in the family we can make a difference in how the dying experiences their death and we can help the dying person to live right up to their last breath because we can bring quality and intimacy and connection and love so that because you know one of the things is that a, a, a person who has just received a terminal illness the people around them start treating them right then as though they're already dead wow. as though they're already gone wow. and so miss this last you know this last lap of life and so much can happen because the, the people who really engage when a person is dying, both the dying and the family will say, you know, this was the richest time of our relationship. This is the time that I felt closest. This is the time that was most real This and honest. This is when we said the most important stuff. But if you don't lean in, if you don't see this as an opportunity, you'll pull away. Another chapter you have making a difference in a dying person's life. Um, you give a lot of examples of different things that people can do. I'm curious, you know, even for someone who's not able or willing to make a commitment like you made with your father or even near that, you know, what about someone, what about, you know, the the nieces and the nephews and the grandchildren? What Absolutely. what kind of things can they do uh, yeah. to make a difference in, in maybe their grandparents' life? Last That's days. a really great question, and and one of the things that I do um, in hospice is to go into a family and really try to encourage the entire family, from the oldest to the youngest, to participate. Because a young child, um, that five-year-old, first of all, we want here's an opportunity to not teach them to be afraid of death, to see the process. Um, and it's not; uh, it doesn't have to be a mystery. And in fact, the child can understand some of the things as a five-year-old but it's that five-year-old that I want to put up on grandma's bed and have him snuggle into grandma and it's that five-year-old who will say to grandma tell me again the story of your life 
um, because one of the things that the dying need is that they need to tell their story so that they can find the meaning of their life. Mm. But so often, adults will say to that person who is repeating stories, oh, you already told me that. Right. Right. And so, again, they cut them off. They minimize the importance of this step um, toward the end. But a child will participate. Tell me again, Grandma. Tell me again. Tell me again. You know? Yeah. And so it's a great um, service. And also you see that that, um, that little child is leaning into Grandma and touching her, yeah. which is another thing that the dying need. They need the physical contact. They need the warmth. They need the feedback that they are still alive and that they're beautiful and important in the world and it's that child that can do that yeah. so a child can listen a child can touch I'll have um, I'll have a young child brush grandma's hair or massage lotion into her dry hands mm. uh, a, a child can sit and do their homework with grandma just to companion them there's there's a lot of things that um, children in the family can do and then other people in the family who Maybe there's someone in that family who is not comfortable with touch. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's a lot that can be done. One person who's comfortable with a computer but uh, isn't necessarily a people person, they can be doing a lot of the research about this um, illness. Um, someone else can be in charge of, of um, errands and going and getting the medication. Another person can be in charge of, of keeping a binder of all the medical information that continues to change. It's a big job. Oh, yeah else can be the person who just sits up at night and 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 you know watches over the dying person so that other people can sleep yeah. so that do the work during the day there are a myriad of uh, jobs that are very very important I mean you know it takes a village is it a, is it a comfort to uh, someone uh, in this situation when others are just sitting there, maybe there isn't necessarily a conversation going on, or do they, do many of them feel as though they have to entertain, you know, from their bed? Um, mm -hmm. Is this a conversation you need to have with them to let them know, I'm just here to be with you, you don't need to entertain me? Yes, it is. But that has everything to do with that um, caregiver's uh, level of acceptance and peace about this process. So uh, someone who's not comfortable with the dying process might walk into the room and be very busy, you know, plumping pillows or adjusting blinds or talking about the weather. That is not comforting. That okay. is not comforting. But someone who just sits at the bedside and is comfortable with silence, offers, offers to listen when the dying person wants to talk, but doesn't offer advice, um, you know, it's just there almost as a container. Let me hold your experience for you is often the way I want to see myself. Um, uh, you know, I think so often, don't we, we can feel another person's level of anxiety. Mm, yeah. And if you're anxious and I'm a mother, yes, I might try to take care of you even though I'm dying. Yeah. And it's exhausting. Right. So I would prefer to have someone with me who, who feels okay, who isn't afraid of me or my dying process and can just be, offers me their presence. Right, right. That's interesting. Presence. And you talk a lot about that too. But that, that seems really, really important. And really important for any one of us to learn how to just be present. Mm -hmm. You know, so many people 
um, you can't be with them unless they're unless somebody's talking. You know, they don't. You know, silence bothers them, right? This is not one of those situations where this is one of those situations where you want to learn how yes. to be silent, how to be present, how to listen, be there for them. Um, you know, a lot of people. Is this a would this be a good time or is this a bad idea for anyone to record one's history um, in one way or another? It's that's a lovely idea. Um, yeah, at the end of my father's life, I recorded a lot of his stories because, you know, one of the things that the the bereaved tell me is, I miss um, I miss their hand. And so one of the things I do is I'll say, take a picture of your loved one's hand. Yeah. And take a picture of your loved one's hand holding your hand. Yeah. Another thing I'll suggest is to record because so often after death, one of the things we really miss is the vo their voice. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, record their stories, um, um, record them on um, in photos. Tell their have them tell their stories. Another thing that I do is, and I did with my father, is that I uh, you can write your loved one's obituary with them, which is a wonderful opportunity to sit with them and review their scrapbooks and to say, Dad. What did this? What does this picture mean to you? Why is this important? What did? The, who was this person in your life? And and you know who were who were your heroes, Dad? And and how did they help shape you? And so together, my dad and I wrote the story of his life. And I was so glad we did that because I thought I knew him better than anyone in the world. Yeah. But in fact, right up at the end, I was learning all these fabulous things about him that I have now. You see? Yeah. Yeah. And. And then he could be, he could say, again, he was the author of his life. And, and he could tell people how he wanted to be remembered. Well, that's it. I, I mean, are some people uncomfortable writing their obituary or even talking about death? I mean, you have to, you have to find yeah. out whether they are or not at the beginning, right? Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, if we are comfortable as a caregiver, yeah. then there's an invitation for them to explore yeah. or to bring things like even their feelings I'm angry about dying or I'm sad about dying instead of oh don't think that way don't think that way don't talk like that you know no let them let them explore it let them process let them be where they are and then and also you know I never I never try to take away someone's denial sure and I never take away someone's hope and let me say that that even at the end of life, and this is this is kind of a different concept, but even at the end of life, when you have received a terminal diagnosis and the doctor has said, there is no more treatment left, mm -hmm. there is no hope uh, for being cure, cured, we are not without hope. We can reframe hope, and that's one of the things that we can do for our loved one, is we can point out the many, many things that we can still hope right up to the end we can hope for compassion we can hope for a comfortable or peaceful death we can hope for no pain we can hope to be surrounded by our loved ones we can hope to die where we choose see there's still a great deal of hope yeah, yeah. in the how we die right right um what about those people who are still hoping for a recovery? Now, you with a lot of people, you say, you know, what, maybe thousands of people. Any of those have a miraculous recovery? Walked out of the hospice? I've actually heard of stories that people have walked out of, out of hospice. Um, did that ever happen with anyone you knew? 
there are cases where people are fired from hospice and <laughs> because they recover and the doctor no longer says you know you have less than six months okay. um, you know they might go in and out and they might return to hospice sure again you know oftentimes I'll, I'll get the question well how long do they have to live how long do they have to live yeah. and I don't think it's about length I think it's about quality yeah. so my question back to them is whether it's three weeks or three months the real question is what are you going to do with whatever time you have yeah 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 um, all right, so you do talk about your near-death experience in the book um, and other things. How helpful is it to the person who's dying to learn about the afterlife? Um, I follow their lead. You follow their lead. Do you open, I mean, you can, can you try to open the subject and see if they're interested at all? Yes, uh, I think a person can ask, ask um, the dying what are their beliefs. Mm-hmm. One of the ways to do that is, um, what's your greatest fear about dying? Are there common ones? Um, well, I, I would say the most common one is that no one's going to be with me when I die. I'm going to be left alone. Mm-hmm. And another common fear is I won't be remembered. Oh. Okay. So if I know that that is their fear, then I'm going to spend a great deal of time comforting and talking to them about how I will remember them, how they will be with me for the rest of my life, how I will see them in the world, when I will remember them, okay? What their legacy, what their life means to me, and what they have passed on to me, okay? So when I identify a person's fear, I know you know, I know what the solution might be. That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Um, and, okay. And now with you, you've had the near-death experience. Did you ever have that conversation with your father? I did. You did? Yes. Um, I didn't talk about that experience for about five years um, because I didn't know anyone who had had that experience and I didn't even have the language really um, to discuss it. Um, and this was in the early 80s. But, um it was also the most profound experience of my life and I didn't want people nitpicking it apart. Um, I didn't tell my father for about um, maybe 10 years and then finally it dawned on me that I might die before he did and um, that it, it uh, that I, I just needed to pass it on, not proselytize, not try to change his mind, but just share my experience because I had seen his wife. I had been in the presence of my mother again and it healed me and so perhaps it might make a difference to him so I did tell him and um, I prefaced it by saying I just want to share an experience with you and I'm not asking you to believe me or uh, anything I just feel that I have to pass it on and you may do with it whatever you want and as I told him my story tears ran down his eyes and, and the only thing he said was I needed to know your mother was okay uh, and I so much, Bob, in that experience, which has helped me with my work um, with the dying, but I don't think someone needs to have that experience in order to be helpful. No. But in the near-death experience, I learned without a shadow of a doubt, I mean, with every fiber of my being, I know that in death there is healing. So my mother died broken, and when she was there in the tunnel to catch me, um, she was vibrant and beautiful and whole and healed. 
And so I also know that um, we never die alone, that there's always someone there to greet us. Um, and I know without a shadow of a doubt that there is no such thing as even needing to be forgiven, that this light that you can call by any name, it doesn't matter, this love, this unconditional love um, is what we're all made of and what connects us all. Um, and I know that there's no fear and no need to, there, that death is not a tragedy. It's another all right, breathtaking. Um, I, I read uh, I read the whole chapter about your near death experience last night to my wife. Uh, just had to share it with her. One of those things. Uh, it, you know, we could we could spend the whole ep episode on it. Uh, I I chose. We'll just talk about it. People can read about it if they want to, um, because I feel like this other information is something that we haven't covered yet, and 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 therefore important. But. Uh, but it's there. What I loved about it was sort of classic near-death experience. Um, you know, not wanting to come back. Right. You know, I thought it was interesting. You you talked about some of the some of the guilt even you went through later about not wanting to come back, where you have a husband and children, and but it. Right. But it teaches you about what that experience is like, what it's like to be there. And, and and we're all going to be there one day. So much love that you wouldn't, so much love and peace and uh, serenity that um, there's just, oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah so I, uh, yeah, I argued. I just said, no, I didn't want to come back, but, <laughs> which was why I didn't talk about it in large part for five years because... I thought no one would understand a mother saying no when she had a young child who needed her. That's right. And it wasn't that I was saying no to my child or my or my husband. It was that I was saying yes to this love. That's right. Exactly. And and and, and you're looking at it from a completely different experience uh, perspective. There, mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure even at that moment you probably didn't feel disconnected from from your family members. You know. I didn't feel disconnected, but I wasn't an ego. Yeah. I wasn't a personality. Yeah. It makes and it very, very different, doesn't it? it? Yes. There was a much higher perspective. Yeah. Everything All right. is at the world. Yeah. All right. So uh, we just have a few minutes left, and I just want to let people know that this book isn't just about dealing with people who are dying. This book is also about people who are grieving. And so I just want to cover a couple things briefly. Um, it's and Bob, really you know, actually, a lot of people have said to me that it's not a book of necessarily about dying or grieving. It's a book about how to live. And 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 certainly opens up conversations about death. You know what I mean? That yes. we never probably have ever had before. We get to 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 hear from someone who has had a great deal of experience around death. And, uh, and and you open up the conversation in ways that m we, many of us wouldn't even know how to open it up. Um, mm -hmm. In talking about grief, um, you talk about the key to resolving grief. There's the key yes. to tell us what that is. The key to resolving grief is validation. Again, um, like the dying process, to be um, held and validated, to be listened to that this is my experience, these are my feelings, to be companioned in grief is the greatest, greatest support. 
So there's a theme going on here. People just need to be listened to and not judged and just accept accept their experience as it is. Right. And each grief is different so that if I'm going to be helpful to you when you're grieving, um, I need to not compare how you grieve to someone else because then I judge, right? Yeah. So I, wanna, I don't want to judge. I don't want to compare. I don't want to make any assumptions about how you should grieve. And I certainly don't, don't want to give you a formula about how long you should grieve. And a lot of people do that. I mean, you know, even when they say, aren't you over it yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Move on. You're right. Grief, lifetime. Um, where did you learn that? in your work I mean did you always know this did you go into did you go into working you know with hospice knowing this already is this something you learn in school or is this something you learn through experience well I think I learned a lot of it through experience I think I learned a lot of what was helpful and meaningful to me starting from when I was 13 and not even um, yeah what was helpful and what wasn't and then I just listened to other people who were grieving yeah. and I get People ask for help um, because there are so many people in our culture who just don't want to go there. They don't want to listen. Yeah. They you, want you quick, 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 move on. Move on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I guess they get nervous, you know, and, and, and then I think there's also a point where they recognize now they're grieving the friendship because that person is no longer the same person they were or the friendship's not the same as it was. And so that comes from a very selfish place, I would imagine. Um, well, I it comes from a place of, of their grief that they have not resolved or touched. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, a, a person who's doing grief counseling really can only take another person as far as they've gone. Yeah, yeah. That, that, oh, that's great. That's, that's, that's classic right there. Um, you also talk about how children grieve differently uh, than adults. Can you give us a couple examples? Well, children do grieve differently because... Um, there are concepts of uh, death that a child needs to understand in order to fully understand death and they don't depending on their family depending on their experience the vocabulary that's used in the family and what's shared um, a child doesn't necessarily fully understand death until maybe they're about 10 so at, at age 5 a child might not understand that there is a cause for death ah. so death doesn't just happen to someone there's a reason for death children also need to understand that death is irreversible and you know when you and I were growing up we used to see the Roadrunner cartoons yeah remember Roadrunner was smashed by a boulder and what happened he immediately jumped up and came back to life yeah So um, children um, need to know that once dead you know, they, they, they don't come back and another concept that a child needs to understand is that they, a body doesn't function after death. So a five-year-old, it would be very common for a five-year-old to ask me, um, does daddy go to the bathroom in heaven? See, still believing that um, the body functions. Yeah. And know where a child is in their understanding of death, again, listening to questions. Um, so there are some things you should not say to, to children in reference. Uh, there's some common uh, ideas, common, common things that are said to children. I, I heard in an interview that you gave, you were sort of giving uh, a little list of some of the things that probably shouldn't be said to children, um, right. such as they've gone to sleep. Right. We want to use, just like sex education, you know, body parts have very specific, real um, vocabulary attached to them. And we should use the real terminology with death. So when I'm talking to a child, I will say, 
mommy died. I, do, I don't say mommy went to sleep forever. I don't say mommy went away. I never say that because the child you know, feels abandoned and then we go into the whole mm. uh, shame and meaning of that. But mommy died and mommy, mommy can't use her body anymore. And then depending on the family's belief system, I'll either you know support their belief about you know um, we believe that mommy is in heaven and what does that mean to you so but we need to repeat the facts often 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 to children and sometimes with if adults don't understand that they'll get exacerbated by you know why that child comes back every night and says where's daddy yeah right because he, they don't understand that daddy is not coming back it's a very long process to yeah. really um, you know, integrate that information. If you don't know, though, how to, you know, the proper way, the proper things to say, what's what's something good to sort of go by? You know, is it honesty? Is it, I mean, what, what would it be? Uh, aside from maybe religious beliefs, that sort of a thing, in how to answer some of the children's questions. Yes, I would be honest and I would I would let the child lead. Yeah. So um, I want to answer the questions honestly and specifically and shortly, succinctly, mm. uh, depending on their question. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and, and and there's some, like the, the whole sleep thing, telling, what, what would be the reason not to tell them that, that they've gone to sleep? Because they... Because the child becomes afraid, terrified go. of going to sleep. Because if daddy died because he went to sleep, right. then I could die when I go to sleep. But even more important than the child... Um, be, being fearful that they're going to die is being afraid that mommy's going to die. Every time so she goes to sleep. parent dies, um, a ch the child's first concern is for their own safety. Who's going to take care of me? Who's uh -huh. going to take care of me? And so if daddy has died, um, mom wants to be very careful about, I am here, I am going to take care of you, you are safe, you know, I'm not going anywhere, and all of that. We really need to create a nest of safety for a child. Mm, mm, okay. Um, uh, I was going to say, what can we, what can we briefly say, knowing that we only have a couple minutes left, about finding meaning in loss? Oh well, meaning is everything, because you see, as you know, death is death. Um, but it, for example, in in my instance, my my mother died. How my family saw her death changed depending on the meaning. So one child in the family might think that mommy died and she and what it means is that she left me and I'm a bad person. Somebody else's meaning is mommy died because she had an illness and her body gave out and she didn't want to leave me. And so those two children's the same incident happened in the family, mm. but as the meaning is so different, those children will grieve very differently. Yeah. Their wounds will be very different, and really their relationships in life with others will be very different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, because we're running out of time, and, and you know, again, as much as we've talked about, we've just covered a fraction of what you have written about. So again, you know, I, I highly recommend this to people. Uh, this is going to be one of my favorite books to give away. Um, again, the book is No One Has to Die Alone. Uh, below this video are links that people can, can buy it on Amazon. Uh, there's going to be a link to your website. Uh, what is your, your website domain name? 
uh, drlonnieleary.com. All right. So it's, it's D-R-L-A-N-I-L-E-A-R-Y.com. That's great. And blog for Psychology Today. Oh, really? I blog there, and it's called that column uh, is called No One Has to Be Alone. Oh, that's beautiful. So it covers the gamut. Oh, that's great. That's great. Uh, well, you know, let me just say, I, I really appreciate you taking the time of getting up early. You're in Hawaii. I'm in Maine. Uh, we were able to make this work thanks to Skype. And, and, and I, and I want to thank you for writing this because you allowed me to help uh, open this conversation up with my loved ones, my family, my friends, in ways that I never would have been able to before, giving me more confidence in, in being able to deal with people who are in this situation. And I know when I get to that point, it's my turn to go. Um, I will be uh, educated uh, on the best way to do it for me. Uh, and, and less fearful and more peaceful. Yeah. So thank you for all of that. And uh, maybe we'll have you back again. We can talk about your near-death experience or, or something else, all right? Thank you, Bob. All right, take care now. Aloha. That's all for another fantastic Afterlife TV episode. Bob couldn't be happier. If you enjoyed this episode as much as Bob, please leave a comment on AfterlifeTV.com, Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. And don't forget to check out Bob's book, Answers About the Afterlife. Thanks for watching Afterlife TV.